Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter, ideas shape markets, ideas change the world. Uh, back in the early 2000s, when we started the great conversation and brought the ecosystem together, um, uh, when you talk ecosystems and you talk networking and you go, who knows who, uh, a name kept coming up. Uh, at the time, he was the publisher of Security Magazine, uh, but Mark seemed, Mark McCourt seemed to know everybody. And we found out he had just uh, published a book called Snow Day, and Mark McCourt is now on with The Great Conversation after, what, 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. It's been, it's been a while. It's been a while. Mark, um, I'm excited to talk to you about Snow Days. Um, in this complex world, what I found is CEOs, their major role in life, uh, people don't realize this, they think it's revenue or customers or market share, but really it's balancing risk and opportunity. And uh, I'm really fascinated to get in your head on what you're finding out about the leadership mindset of risk and opportunity. I got a feeling Snow Day helps illuminate that. Is that correct? Yes, thank you. And thank you for having me uh, with you today, Ron. This is exciting to see you and be a part of the great conversation. Um, Snow Day is a book that focuses on um, disaster and crisis management and how the best in that world create programs that make their organizations resilient and protect their people and their assets to see them through crises. So I had the opportunity during the pandemic to sit back and, and talk to a lot of great people and interview them about how they were getting through COVID-19 and managing what their organizations were doing. And um, there was a wonderful worldview into all these different businesses and how they were operating, many of which were busier during the pandemic than they were pre-pandemic. If you think of uh, certain companies in the logistics world, they got busier and the demands on them became greater in those times. Um, the name Snow Day came out of me as a kid in New Jersey in the 1960s. When it would start to snow, I would look out the window and watch the snow come down and pray for the phone to ring. So somebody, some magical person would tell my mom schools were closed and we would get a play day. And her job was to call five more moms who would each call five more moms so everybody knew that they couldn't send their kids to school that day. So what worked out great for the kids didn't work out great for the moms, I guess, but that's how it goes. And as I started getting into looking at certain things um, in our more recent lifetime, on 9-11, a person who did not have decision authority in the World Trade Center told 600 people not to evacuate, to stay at their desks, and they cost those 600 people and themselves their lives. Um, who gets to decide it is or isn't a snow day is really the concept and theme behind the book and the discussions with these leaders. And we've seen many cases. We've seen two different school districts, New York and LA, came under very similar threats on the same day of terrorist attacks. One chose to stay open, the other chose to close. Um, completely different outcomes. Um, and there are a number of issues around that. Um, a 9-11 a decision whether or not to shoot down passenger jets which was approved and never reached the pilots of those jets. And as we know, it was the passengers on the final jet that took that check, that plane down in Pennsylvania. So when you look at how do we handle catastrophic events, crises, um, 
mass casualty events. Um, what is the process? What are the policies? Who are the people behind this that make it work and are really good at it and successful at it? And how do they and their entire organizations think about it and prepare for it? To have that level of vigilance and capability as part of their culture and as part of their business plan. And I found that quite fascinating. It gave me the opportunity to get into how these choices, decisions, and consequences are made in organizations. Um, and the first place I started, I was very fortunate. I was asked to give a talk in New York at a conference. And I invited a friend of mine who was leading security at New York uh, University. And when I kind of explained my ideas behind Snow Day, um, he said, you don't want me. You want a guy who works for me. His name is Jack Briggs. He runs our global resilience program. He's a crisis management guru. And I got to meet Major General Jack Briggs, who's retired from the United States Air Force. And Jack's role in the Air Force post 9-11, about 10 years later, was he became the guy at Operation Noble Eagle that decided whether or not commercial passenger jets over the continental United States and Canada would or would not be shot down. That was his job as a, as a general, as a major general. Um, and his criteria, his discipline, his work that he has done has permeated many, many organizations, not only the military, but civilian organizations on how to prepare and think and plan around disaster recovery and disaster management. Um, so I got a great look. I got to interview folks from major corporations, from the World Championship Kansas City Chiefs, from the University of Pennsylvania, different organizations that had dynamically different situations, but all had the same problem, a massive pandemic on their hands. And I learned talking to them many, many things. Um, one was that in all of their organizations, there was a buy-in at the very top for a policy for managing crises. It was approved, there was a policy, there was a program. Um, second, um, there was a dedication to it. The people that they hired and brought in, the training they put behind it, not just the people dedicated to crisis management, but to the entire company, to all of their employees and stakeholders to be a participant in understanding this and being prepared for it. The training behind it, the communication behind it was strong. And there was a belief in investing in the technologies to manage and communicate around crises and events and critical events. Um, the other thing that was interesting talking to everyone and everyone said the same thing, there's always a crisis. There were crises during the pandemic. There were cyber attacks, there were fires in the West, there were earthquakes, there was civil unrest in places. Um, there, there were all sorts of problems that businesses encounter. There are industrial accidents and so on that these same organizations have to deal with day in and day out. And having the pandemic on top of it added to the complexity and the work. But these people are also very wired for emergency response and being prepared to handle these crises. So I thought that was very interesting and insightful as well. And it comes through in the book as I got to interview folks from Mission Impossible Foods, Jacobs, the chiefs who I mentioned, UPenn, Slack, Microsoft, and others really hearing their personal stories is what they went through and their professional stories of leading these organizations to get through a crisis as big and long as the pandemic. Um, and really it was a marathon, not a sprint. Most of these events are discrete. Something starts and a day or two later it ends. The pandemic started, it did not end. And it was a long, long run 
for these organizations to stay on top of their game and continue forward and all of that. So the leadership interviews were really, um, for me, personally rewarding. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk with folks and, and, and put their words to these stories um, about what their experiences were. I'm really intrigued, uh, Mark, on, I, I wrote down four, four elements uh, or four learnings you got in how uh, leaders are, are developing a recipe for um, handling uh, incidents and crisis. Uh, I, I heard the following. I have some questions, but I want to make sure I got it right. Uh, buy-in at the top. So the executive team has bought in, uh, undergirding that buy-in is policy and programs that go to the second element, which is a dedication to training, which creates kind of the cultural buy-in from the company. And a belief in technology is a critical asset to optimize how indeed that program is managed and executed at the time of need, which leads me to the fourth one, which is absolutely intriguing. And that is at the end of the day, uh, creating a mindset, uh, 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 a mindset that allows them to be adaptable and agile if anything at all hits them at any time, which not only allows them to survive the event, not only it allows them to recover or be resilient in the event, but opportunistically allows them to possibly leverage the event uh, uh, for uh, market advantage and, uh, and company advantage and employee advantage. Did, did I get those right? Yes, you did. And I think you kind of took the first and the last conclusion you made and hit the nail on the head in that the buy-in from the top down comes from the understanding that it gives them a competitive advantage to be able to, um, to be a good partner in their supply chain, to be available and to be open. And, and those are critical things to be able to operate the business and be resilient. So a lot of the folks I talked to really saw their role as resilience and security or resilience and risk management. Um, and a lot of other organizations, resilience is sort of a bullet point further down on the page and it should not be there in these situations. Um, and, and I think that's a great insight, Ron. Well, and, and, uh, and let's be honest, and the whole community be honest, you're asking a lot. Those four things are a lot of things. There's a lot of moving parts there, uh, starting with the leaders at the top, actually developing the right kind of policy and program, choosing the right technology platforms to execute it, um, having the budget to be able to do all this. And But when we get to mindset, um, Gallup, um, Gallup once said that 86% of employees are not engaged in, in companies, in the company's whole initiative, purpose, and passion. And it's a, it's a, it's a $7 trillion secret. So my gosh, here comes the res risk resilient security guy trying to move the culture to a, a crisis management mindset that is composure under pressure with agility and adaptability. I would imagine there's a lot of challenges in there. Did out of your interviews come how they did that? Yeah, they don't wait for the crisis. <laughs> it, is, it is part of, um, you know, you have kids go to college. Sometimes at orientation as a freshman, the security guy gets up and talks about being safe on the campus. And other colleges, they don't want to mention there's any problems on the campus. They don't even have the security guy get up and talk in front of people. 
Now, what would you prefer? To not know or to know and have your kid be a little bit educated about best practices for their own personal safety at campus. So day one, coming in, we care about you, duty of care, um, and, and talking about this and making this part of what we do on a regular basis. They have fire drills. They have different things that they do in offices and in businesses as part of code. Um, and being prepared and communicating is very important. One of the other things in the book also is interesting is as this rolled out and as there's a lot of diversity in what the best thing to do was in terms of um, staying safe during COVID, in terms of how to get help from the government or medical help, um, paying your bills, being worried about your job and so on. Um, I don't know when that Gallup poll was, but a significant percentage of employees had more trust and reliance on their employer than they did on public services. Interesting. So what the folks in this role of resilience and communications, emergency management founders, their communications and the inbound hotline 800 numbers that were set up for employees to call into were incredibly powerful because it became the place where the employees could actually reach somebody and get information and they have faith in the information they're getting from their employers. Because there's a lot of controversy depending on what news network you turned on or what town you lived in as to what was being prescribed. So that was kind of interesting that, that there was a, a sense of, um, of reliance and trust in the employer for information and help from duty of care. And there's an expectation, and I've seen this in a number of the companies I visited and talked with, that they're going to expand that going forward, that this will not go away post-COVID-19, that there's going to be a continued reliance on health and wellness of employees and information coming from the employer, not from the state. And this isn't new everywhere. There's a lot of companies in the Silicon Valley, San Francisco area that if there were an earthquake, which everybody's, there's a lot of earthquakes, people at some point expect a worse one. They have pieces in place for those people to be informed from their employer. And they're probably gonna know more about it from say working at Google than they're going to know from the city of San Francisco in those emergency moments. So, so I think that's another part of that mindset um, settling in. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I had a data intelligence uh, guy on the phone the other day. I shouldn't even say data intelligence, uh, intelligence guy. Uh, and he was going through his methodology. And of course, one of the, the critical imperatives is validating the source uh, because they have to be able to trust the data. So three things came out of mind when you were talking here, especially when you started with the, uh, the mothers communicating to each other and cascading down until everyone was notified. And, and, and then you talked later about a hotline uh, in a company. So if data is the new gold or the new oil and communication is the operational imperative, what is, uh, what is the role of the new technology to extend and optimize the mother milk chain that you talked about at the beginning? Um. I, I think the, um, the piece here that's very interesting is constantly gathering data, constantly being on the lookout with radar to bring in data from all over the world. There's a number of sources around that. And 
number of companies, I think Everbridge is probably the biggest having acquired NC4 and others to have inbound data of what's disruptive to your supply chain, to electrical outages that affect a manufacturing plant, to other things along those lines that can be disruptive to business in any way. But you're always gathering this information, you're analyzing it to look for possible disruption for service and business. And then you have to synthesize that and say, is that important? Do we have to keep an eye on that? Can we dismiss that? And then communicate it. Who do we communicate that to? And this really gets into one of the core themes of Snow Day, which is who has decision authority? It's very important well before a crisis to determine who is the person or the committee that has a decision authority. The people I interviewed for the book do not have decision authority. Their role is actually to make sure that they've properly synthesized what the crisis is and be able to present to the decision authority, who's not a subject matter expert on this, but is the CEO or the president of the university or the owner of the football team, they have to be able to present to that person options. And of those options, they have to recommend the best option. And one of the most interesting things that uh, Jack Briggs said, and he has said, I've had to say this more than once in my career. And sir, now is the time to make a decision. So, you know, now it's go time. You say very politely that you don't, you really can't go back and mull this over and get more opinions. We've reached a deadline. So you have to have the best options based on data and research, the recommendation you would make, and a timeline to make that decision. And, and this is the core to this, this, why the technology, because if you're the CEO and you're expecting somebody to come to you with, with, with what the best thing to do is, I, I gotta have inputs. So if you're not gonna, if I can't have the money to get the inputs, I can't give you the output, we're all guessing. And one of the big movie chains, AMC, that, that went under, their CEO, uh, an interview with him, I didn't interview him, but one of his statements was, you know, we're just a bunch of amateurs sitting around the table guessing. We have no medical expertise. We didn't know what to do. Open the theaters, close the theaters, open the theaters, close the theaters. Well, we, we didn't have a medical person at that table that could advise us. So without the input, without the data, without recommendations, then um, and without, the, without the, the best option available, he could not make a decision as a CEO of the world's biggest movie theater chain as to what to do. And you had conflicting information coming out and, and, and it cost them quite a bit there at that company. So, so that's a big piece of the technology. Policy certainly is, uh, the people in the training is, certainly the, here's your role, here's your part. But the idea that we're gonna provide a duty of care, we're gonna communicate with you. If you need help, you can call us. Some of the things that these companies did for their employees and their employees' families during COVID-19 were incredibly impressive. Um, they went out of their way to ensure uh, mental and emotional support and health for people. They had medical professionals come in and give them advice on how to do that, that playbook. So they would call people up the weekly meeting, the other weekly meeting, the project meeting, the sales meeting, and they instructed their managers, hey, next time you talk to Ron, forget the, forget the spreadsheet on sales deals. Your conversation is this, hey, Ron, you've been home alone for a month. You haven't gone out to see a single customer. How are you doing? 
How's it going for you? Okay. And that made a world of difference in, in managing through this crisis for people. So those are what the best companies did. Is it hard? No. Is it impossible? No. Is it going to break the budget? No. Does it have to, you know, but you can't have somebody going, what the heck are you doing? Call them run up and ask them an impersonal questions, right? You got to have it vetted. HR has to buy in. It has to be a program, has to be done well. And it was. In, in the organizations I talked to, the ones that did the best, it was very well done. This is so powerful, Mark, and so timely. Uh, a, a term has been used more and more lately with leaders that I'm hearing. And it's... Uh, and you'll recognize it because it's based, it's, it's, an it's a corollary to another term that we know leaders are using as a benchmark before they hire new leaders into their company. Uh, the old term was emotional intelligence, but what we're hearing more and more is something called psychological safety. And I, I can just hear you sitting across the table asking that question you just asked. You haven't seen a customer in six months you know, how you doing? And uh, so what, what strikes me is this idea of caring, this idea of caring, creating a culture of care alongside the duty of a chief security officer, which is the duty of care. All, all those three things, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, and, it, and it truly was at the executive level, you talk to folks at Team Sport to make sure these things are being done well. And one of the chapters in the book, The Human in Us All, is an interview with Park Dietz, who's the founder and CEO of Threat Assessment Group. And he works with Fortune companies on emotional and psychological help for employees. Um, he works with social media companies because they got to provide support to their employees who have to look at very bad things online to, to make sure they don't get online and they need help because that's a very bad day for somebody to spend all day looking at that stuff. These are the things that employers do under the normal guise of stress, of, right, of working with employees. And during COVID became a very special, different situation. Um, so you saw a spike in day drinking, in drug abuse, in you saw a lot of turnover, you saw a lot of reduction in productivity in certain places. You had challenges. Um, you had a lack of... Um, Kids not going to school, so child abuse complaints, mostly provided by teachers in schools, dropped because the kids were home, no longer um, having a little bit of protection. Um, same thing for um, domestic partnerships where there could be abuse. Work was a safe haven for one of those partners, and now that was taken away. So many of those things could be ignored or not seen, but for the organization that has the awareness and, and makes the effort in the program so you say this could be something and we care about our people, the, the return on that investment from those employers is going to be a thousand to one to those who did not. The payoff is not only uh, the contributions you make to your people and to yourself, but the payoff just might possibly be um, uh, saving your company and prospering during the bad times. This has been a great conversation with Mark McCourt, author of Snow Day and uh, industry, uh, industry guru uh, uh, because of his ability to have great conversations with our market ecosystem. Mark, thank you so much. 
Ron, thank you so much for having me. And I hope to get to see you soon in person.